Okay, well, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 16, but today our focus will be verses 4, 5, and 6. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 says this, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything, and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord... Neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering." But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we do ask that you would be our teacher and guide into all things. Lord, we want to know your will. We want to do your will. And Lord, we need you to teach us. We thank you that you've given us your word, Lord, that teaches us that you have created both men and women, and that you've created men to have a a specific role within the home, within the church, that you've also created women to have a specific role within the home and within the church. And that, Lord, when we adhere to these roles, and, Lord, when we submit ourselves to the order that you have established in creation, that, Lord, it always leads to our good. For when we obey you, Lord, it is always for our benefit. Lord, it is always what is good and best for us. So, Lord, help us to see and understand these things. And, Lord, though some of these things may seem new and peculiar to us, Lord, may what is in your word never seem strange to us. But, Lord, may we seek to understand every word of God so that we might do those things that are pleasing in your sight. And, Lord, we'll give you the praise and glory. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're in this passage where the apostle is teaching uh, the proper roles of authority that God has established in the world, right? We understand that God is a God of authority and that God is a God of order, that all legitimate authority has its origins from the Lord. This is as it says in Romans 13 verse 1, there is no authority except from God. So all authority, all proper legitimate authority in this present life has as its source the authority of God, and has been established by His will, right? God exercises His authority in this world through intermediaries, right? Whether that be in the home, in the church, in society, God has established various structures of authority by which He rules over the world. We just quoted Romans 13. Romans 13 is talking about governing authorities, the authorities over the world, over society that are found in the government, right? So whether it be in society, in the church, in the home, God has established authority in these realms. And when we adhere to those authority, when we recognize and submit to these structures, it always brings about peace and harmony, righteousness, salvation. It's good for everyone who is involved. When we reject these things, when we resist the proper authorities that God has established, it leads to strife. 
to misery, to chaos, to death and destruction, whether we're talking about the home, the church, or in society, which is what's happening in our own present day. That's why there's complete misery everywhere, because people do not respect proper authority in this world, ultimately because they hate the authority of God. Now, last week we focused on verse 3, which is the pivotal, the foundational verse for what the apostle is teaching throughout the rest of this passage. And there we regarded four different levels of authority and submission established by God, right? The ultimate authority is God the Father. For God the Father, he says, is the head or the authority of Christ. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to Christ, but this authority that has been given to him, he has received from his Father, Therefore, Christ himself is not outside of the authority of God the Father, but he exercises his authority over heaven and earth in perfect submission to the conformity of the will of God the Father. Right? The one who subjected all things to Christ is himself accepted from the subjection to Christ. The Father is not subject to Christ, but the Christ is subject to the Father. So God the Father is the head over Christ. Then he taught that Christ is the head of every man. And by man here, he means men in contrast to women, not mankind, though it is true in a sense that Christ is over all mankind. But here he's talking about men in contrast to women. And in terms of men, the immediate authority over the man is Christ. And Christ exercises his authority over the man Through his holy word, it is the duty of every man, of every husband, of every father to study, to know, to understand and believe the word of Christ and then to teach the word of Christ to his wife, to his children, so that they too may come to know the will of Christ. This is the authority. This is the responsibility that Christ has given to the man. And it is his job to lead his family into the will of God. Just as Christ exercises his authority in subjection to the will of the Father, so the man also is to exercise his authority in subjection to the will of Christ. By only expecting of his wife and children those things that are consistent with the word of Christ. Then lastly we saw that the man is the head of a woman. In the home, in the church, the man has authority over the woman. The woman is not to live independent of her husband. She is not to think that she is so wise and so strong that she doesn't need a man, she doesn't need a husband, she doesn't need to be under his authority. But rather, she is to submit to his authority and understand that she needs the man to be over her because she is the weaker vessel. And whenever she does that, it is for her good and for everyone's good. She is to submit to her husband even as the church submits to Christ, even as the man submits to Christ, even as Christ submits to the Father. So in regards to the roles of men and women, the man has authority over the woman. This is the order established by God. God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of the man, the man is the head of a woman. This is the foundation of what comes next. Because of this truth, because of this reality, because of the different position given to the man and the other one given to the woman, then it is necessary for the man and for the woman to adorn themselves properly in the public assembly so that what is taught in verse 3 is manifested outwardly through this public symbol. That's what he's talking about in verses 4, 5, 6, and then even on into the passage. So let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4. We'll pick up in verse 4 today. There, first, the men. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Here he says, a man, any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. Here the apostle is using the word that's translated head in two different ways. 
right? In the first case, he's talking about the head, the physical head that is on the body, right? That sits upon the shoulders of the man, right? In terms of the human body and the various members that comprise the body, the head is the supreme member of the body. It is on the top of our body, and it is in the head that the glory of the body is seen, right? We know more about a person through the head than any other member. The features associated with the head are what communicate to us who the person is, that give the distinct features that make up the person. We know more about a person by looking at their face or looking at their head than we do by looking at any other member of their body. So he says, a man who prays or prophesies with something on his physical head, right, with a covering over his head, something that conceals his head is to disgrace his head, or to dishonor his head. Now, in this second case, the dishonoring of the head, he's not talking about that the man who prays or prophesies with something on his physical head dishonors his physical head. Here, he's talking about his figurative head, his authoritative head, the head that he's talked about in verse 3. And who is the head of the man? The head of the man is Christ. Notice again verse 3. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. So if a man prays or prophesies with his physical head covered, he disgraces or dishonors his authoritative head. He dishonors Christ by covering his head. So here, men are forbidden by God from covering their head while praying or prophesying. So in this passage then, many people, naysayers and critics, would say that we're just picking on women. Well, he's not just talking about women. He's talking about both men and women, and he's forbidding men from doing certain things. So he's not just restricting women. He's also restricting men and telling the men that you are not permitted to wear a covering, to wear a hat whenever you come to worship God. You are not to pray and prophesy with something that is covering your head. So it's both for men and women. The men are being addressed as well. The men are restricted. They are forbidden from praying or prophesying with something on their head because if they do so, they bring disgrace, they bring dishonor upon Christ. Christ has conferred upon the man the honor, the authority of leading his home. He has made him the master of the home. He has made him the head of the wife. And a head covering is a sign of submission. It is a sign of subjection. So for a man to wear a covering while praying or prophesying is a sign that this man is abdicating his role and his authority over the woman. He's behaving and adorning himself like a woman instead of behaving and adorning himself like a man. And that's not the way we're supposed to be. Men are supposed to act like men. Men are supposed to dress like men. We are to behave like men, contrary to what's happening in society. Because the society today is telling the men to be like women. And they're telling the women to behave like men, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches men to act like men, to dress like men, to behave like men. And one of the distinctions between men and women is that the man has authority over the woman. So that's why he should not pray or prophesy with something on his head, because if he has something on his head, he is subjecting himself to another person. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 says, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Act like men. Yes, men need to act like men. By being strong, courageous, firm in the faith. And here he says a man should not pray, should not prophesy with something covering his head. Now, this is something that we adhere to. This is something that's being adhered to even now. Commonly, men do not wear hats. They do not wear coverings whenever they come to worship. Though men are in times required for their work or for whatever outside of the church to wear a hat or to wear something on their head, 
But in the church, in the worship of God, is it not commonly practiced that the men do not wear hats to church? That the men remove their hats whenever they come into church, whenever there is a public prayer offered, that the men all remove their hats. Well, why does that take place? Where did this tradition come from? It came from this. This is why men do these things. Now, one might ask, why is it that this brings dishonor to Christ? What is the big deal? How is it that this disgraces Christ? Well, it dishonors Christ because God says it dishonors Christ. Isn't that what the passage says? He says, if a man prays with something on his head, he dishonors Christ. He disgraces Christ. It is a disgraceful thing toward Christ for a man to do these things. And if God says it is dishonoring, if God says it is disgraceful, then it's disgraceful, right? Whether a person thinks it is or not, right? Whether society thinks it is or not, right? Especially our society, because our society says it's okay for two men to get married. They say it's okay for a man to use a woman's bathroom. So why would we trust these bunch of deviants to tell us what is honorable, what is dishonorable, what is graceful, what is disgraceful, when they don't have any clue as to what is honoring and disgraceful? Who does know what is honoring? Who does know what brings disgrace? God does. And if God says it is disgraceful for a man to pray or prophesy with something on his head, then that settles it. It is disgraceful in what it communicates. So men, we should desire that Christ would be honored by the way that we dress, right? When we meet to worship God, the chief goal, the chief purpose of our worship is that Christ would be honored in what we do. My comfort, my stylishness, my looks, my you know, self-worth, whatever it is that a person is thinking about, what I feel about, what I think, these things don't matter at all. All that matters is that Christ is honored in all that we do. And here the apostle clearly teaches that a man who prays or prophesies with his head covered is dishonoring. He is bringing disgrace to his authoritative head who is Christ. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to do those things that are dishonoring to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. Here, the apostle is talking about immorality and how immorality brings dishonor to the body. But it would also apply to this as well. Because we are talking about the body. We're talking about the head. We're talking about what people are wearing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Right? We should want that God would be glorified in our body that we would use our body in such a way as to bring glory and honor to Christ. Well, here's one way that we can do that. A man who prays or prophesies with his head covered is bringing dishonor to Christ. So we ought to pray and prophesy with our heads covered, and when we do so, instead of bringing disgrace to Christ, we bring honor to Him. Honor to Him because we are recognizing the role, the position that God has conferred upon us. Also, second, or second, first Samuel, first Samuel chapter two, verse 27, first Samuel two, 27. It says, then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourself fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, 
will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve and all the incense of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be a sign to you which will be concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before me, my anointed always. There in verse 30, to Eli, he tells him, those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Well, if a man prays or prophesies with his head covered, he is despising Christ. He brings disgrace to Christ. And what will God do to those who dishonor Christ? They will be lightly esteemed. But those who honor him properly, God will honor them as well. So these things ought to be in our mind whenever we're gathering for worship, that we want to honor Christ. And we might think, well, this is a very small issue. Well, maybe it is, but it doesn't matter. It's a biblical issue, and if it's in the Bible, then we need to address it, and we need to adhere to what the Scriptures teach. Now, a few points of clarification. First, when he says, pray or prophesy with head covered, praying and prophesying, I take to be summations of what takes place when we gather together to worship God. We are offering prayers to God, and we are prophesying, right? Prophesying, not in the sense that we are predicting specific future unknown events, right? When people hear the word prophecy, they almost exclusively think in terms of predicting some future event with great clarity and great specificity. So, for example, if I said on October 23rd of 2025, at 10 a.m., a tornado is going to hit Oklahoma City, right? That might be what people think in terms of a prophecy, and certainly... There are times in the Bible when the prophets made these kinds of clear pronouncements, these clear declarations. For example, Jeremiah predicted that the Jews would be in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Isaiah predicted with specificity the name of the king who would release the Jews and allow them to come back to their homeland when he predicted that Cyrus would be the king who would allow them to come back. This before Cyrus was even born. Isaiah was predicting these things. So the prophets did predict those types of things. But is that all the prophets are doing? Are they simply predicting future events that are going to take place? Specific dates, specific people, unknown future events. And the answer is no. Most of the teaching of the prophets has to do with reiterating and explaining truths that have already been revealed whether through the prophet Moses or some other prophet who came before them. They are repeating the same truths over and over and over again, speaking to them about God, who he is, his attributes, his character, his nature, talking to them of righteousness, of sin, of judgment, of salvation, faith, repentance, obedience, This is what the prophets are doing. They're constantly calling the people to turn from their sin, to put their faith in Christ, because there is a day of judgment that is coming upon the world. Let's see an example of this. Nahum. Nahum, and we'll look at chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1. Notice here. It says, verse 1, The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversary, And he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. And clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. 
Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him, and with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice, like tangled thorns, and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed, a stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who has plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off entirely. So here, Nahum chapter 1, are these, uh, is this wisdom, knowledge, this understanding that Nahum is giving, are these truths that no one has ever known before Nahum? Is he revealing things that no other prophet, no other person before this time has ever seen, ever known about, never understood? Of course not, right? Verses 2 and 3, he's quoting here almost word for word from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 15, that God is an avenging God who takes wrath on his enemies, that God is one who will by no means clear the guilty. So God had already revealed that to Moses. Nahum is just repeating and further explaining what God had already told Moses. What about verse 15? Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Here, that's Isaiah 52, verse 7. So this isn't something that's new and novel to Nahum that no one knew about. Isaiah already said these things many years ago. Nahum is simply repeating what Isaiah had already predicted and what he had already prophesied. And this is a prophet. He, this is a prophecy, Nahum chapter 1, and he's here talking about things that were already known in many generations before and had already been taught by many prophets even before the time of Nahum. Well, is that not similar to what we are doing every single Sunday when we meet together? There's the public reading of Scripture. There's the public teaching of the Scriptures. And when we read the scriptures and when we preach the scriptures, we're doing the exact same thing. We are announcing truths concerning the character and nature of God, the sin of man, the judgment of God, salvation, righteousness. We're stressing the importance and necessity of faith, repentance, obedience because of what God is going to do in the future, right? On the day of judgment. This is the basis for us talking about these things because of what is coming on this present world. We speak of the day of judgment. We speak of the life to come. We speak of the new heavens and new earth, the lake of fire, eternal life, eternal rewards, the resurrection of the dead, the second coming of Christ. Have any of these events happened in our lifetime? Or are they all still future? These are all events that we're still waiting for. They are still future to us. They were future to the prophets, and they are still future to us, but we have to talk about these things all the time because the Bible is chiefly concerned not merely with this life, but ultimately with the life to come, with the spiritual life, with eternal life. So when we talk about the day of judgment, when we talk about the second coming of Christ, when we talk about the resurrection of the dead or eternal life or eternal rewards, we are speaking of things that are still future to us, things that are unseen, things that will be accomplished in the future that form the basis for how we are to live in this present life. And in that sense, we are predicting. We are predicting what is going to happen in the future. I can say to you with perfect certainty 
that there is a second coming of Christ. That he is going to come, and when he does, he will judge the world with righteousness. I can tell you with certainty that there is eternal life for the righteous and eternal damnation for the wicked. And that God is going to separate the sheep from the goats on the day of judgment. These things haven't happened yet, so how can we predict them? How can we know? How can we announce these things? Because they're in the word of God. They're in the word of God, and they've been announced to us by the prophets and by the apostles. So when we are announcing these things, right, we're not giving new, special revelation that no one has ever known about. We're simply declaring what God has already announced and laid down and scripturated in his holy word. And this is what the Spirit of Christ teaches us to do. John 16, verse 13. John 16, verse 13, says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Isn't that what we're doing when we read the Scriptures? When we read and study the Word of God, we are disclosing through the Word of Christ what is yet to come what is going to happen in the future, right? And then saying, because these things are true, then this is the way you have to live right now. You have to repent of your sin. You have to put your faith in Christ. You have to live a godly life. You have to do this now in light of what is going to happen in the future. So in that sense, we are prophesying whenever we are reading the scriptures, whenever we are teaching from the scriptures. That's how he means it here. Right? When the man prays or prophesies with something on his head, he means it in this sense. Not that every person in the congregation is prophesying specific events that are going to happen, but when we're reading the Scripture and teaching the Scripture, right, when we gather together for public worship, this is what we are doing. Right? Isn't this the case in our own services? Right? We begin our service with our catechism reading, which is the majority is just reading the scriptures that prove the question and the answer. Then we sing, and what are we singing? We're singing the words of scripture. Then someone gets up and does a public scripture reading. Then we sing more songs that are songs from scriptures. Then I get up, read a passage of scripture. Then we teach or exposit, this is what the scripture says. So in one way or another, everything that we do is coming from the Scriptures. And whether we are the one who is up front, who is the one doing the reading, or the one doing the teaching, or whether we are the ones that are sitting and are listening and hearing to what is being said, all of us are participating in this because whether we're the one speaking or whether we're the one listening, we are all to assent to these truths. We're all to believe them. We're all to obey them. We are all to agree with them. And even those who are listening should be in their mind and in their heart agreeing with the truths that are being proclaimed from the Scriptures. And so in that sense, not only is the one who's speaking prophesying, but everyone else is participating as well. Everyone else is participating in the public worship, whether they are the one up front or whether they are the one who is listening, because only one person can talk at a time. Otherwise, it's disorder and chaos. And this is the case throughout the entirety of the service. So whether it's prophesying in this way, or whether it's prayer, right? That's the other component of our worship, is it not? Prayer and prophesying. Well, do we not pray in our, in our services? We offer a public prayer before the beginning of the service, we offer a public prayer after the reading of the scripture. We offer a public prayer before the offering, a public prayer before the sermon, a public prayer after the sermon. And though, again, only one person is offering the prayer publicly, everyone else is supposed to be listening. Everyone else is supposed to be engaged with that. And in their heart and in their mind, they are to be praying as well, along with the one who is leading in the public prayer. So in that sense, are we not all praying? This is what he means by prayer and prophecy. When those things are happening, when there is the praying and the prophesying, he says the man should not cover his head 
lest he bring dishonor to Christ. Okay, another point of clarification. It should be pointed out that this custom is still seen in our culture today. Not, not universally, but it is still seen in part in our culture today. Even amongst many unbelievers. Even unbelievers practice this. So the corresponding truth as it relates to women has been completely lost from our culture, from our society, and even from the churches. But the practice that men should uncover their heads for certain things remains a part even of our culture to this present day. If you go to a public event, say you go to a, uh, a high school graduation or a, a, a high school football game, and they have a public prayer before the game begins, what do all of the men do? Do not all the men typically take their hats off? And even when there's the Pledge of Allegiance or the playing of the national anthem, don't the men usually take their heads off? Why? Why is this happening? Right? Where did this custom come from? Why is it that men are doing these things? Even growing up, even the church that I was in, the men did not wear hats to church. Even today, for the most part, men do not wear hats to church. Now, I'm sure if you go to live church, they don't have a problem with it, right? Because they're not legalists like we are. But, you know, that many churches wouldn't care. But even in most Baptist churches, most conservative churches, the men still do not do that. They know to take their hats off, and if they didn't, that someone would come up and ask them to remove it, and there wouldn't be a problem with that, right? When I was a child, when I was a teenager, the church that I went to, it was expected that even if a man entered into the church building, if it was on Monday or Tuesday and he had a hat on, what should he do? He should take his hat off. And some people do this if they go to the post office, if they go to the bank, wherever they go. Why? Why do men do this? Where does this custom come from? This is where it comes from. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. This is what has been practiced for many years, and it was practiced in the churches, and it remains in the churches for the most part, and even in the culture today. So this custom that is still seen in the culture has its foundation in a biblical tradition. Though again, most men in the culture don't understand that. They have no idea why they do it. They just do it because it's something that has always been done. They don't know about 1 Corinthians 11. They've never studied 1 Corinthians 11. They have no idea that it comes from a biblical tradition. Yet, the custom remains. Because of the influence of the Christian tradition upon the culture in America. And this is why we contended a couple of weeks ago that the reason this tradition, the corresponding tradition as it relates to women, has been lost in the churches and in the culture is not because of serious study of the Bible, but rather the influence of feminism in our culture, in our society, and in the churches today. So even in the culture, even amongst the unbelievers, the men are doing something because of the influence of the church and the Bible upon the culture. And that's a good thing. But then in terms of the head covering for the women, the culture has influenced the church so that the biblical tradition has been lost, and that's not a good thing. That's not good. We want the church, the Bible, to be influencing the culture. We don't want the culture to be influencing and making inroads into the church. Feminism attacked and sought to overturn the practice of women wearing head coverings because feminists hate subjection to men. They hate that the Bible teaches that the man has authority over the woman. They hate, they despise these things. So of course they would hate a symbol that represents this, that establishes this, that teaches this. But the women care nothing about the corresponding practice for men. They don't care if a man takes his hat off before he prays or if he leaves it on before he prays because they don't care about men. All they're concerned about is liberating, so-called liberating, of women from the oppression of men and of the patriarchy. So this is why then I think we still see remnants of 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16 regarding men but not regarding women. Also, one other point. When I was a child, 
the girls, for the most part, did not wear bonnets or hats or coverings or anything like that to church, except on Easter Sunday. On Easter Sunday, a lot of the girls, you know, would get their Easter hats and they would wear them to church. And did the church expect the girls to take their hats off on Easter Sunday? And the answer is no. So it was expected for the boys, but not for the girls. Again, why? Why is this the case? And this is the answer. It's because of what is taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Though, again, the passage isn't being taught. People don't understand it. It's not being practiced. Probably none of us have ever heard a teaching on that. Yet still, there remains some residue, some remnant of its teaching, of its influence on the churches, on the cultures, even though people don't understand it. Okay, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. All right, now for the women. Just as it is improper for a man to pray or prophesy with his head covered, so now he says it is improper for a woman to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered. Right, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, right? A woman who prays or prophesies with her physical head uncovered is bringing disgrace upon her authoritative head. And according to verse 2, who is the authoritative head of the woman? Or according to verse 3, it is the man, right? That's what he said in verse 3, right? Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. Now, why is this the case? Why does this bring disgrace or dishonor upon the man. Well, as we said earlier, this is what God says. So it is a declaration from the Lord. And also, the man has authority over the woman. God created the woman to be in submission, to be in subjection to her husband. This is why the man manifests his position of authority by praying and prophesying with his head uncovered, and the woman manifests her position of submission by praying and prophesying with her head covered. So it is a sign of her submission to the authority of her husband. So the man, in terms of the home, right, in terms of the relationship between men and women, the man does not have an authority over him in terms of human authority, in terms of in the home, the man is the authority and the woman is to be in submission. Now, of course, Christ is over the man and God is over the man and God is over everyone. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about in terms of the home, in terms of the relationship between men and women, who is in authority and who is in submission. The man has authority and the woman is to be in submission. And that's why the man should be uncovered to manifest his authority over the home in the relationship and the woman should be covered because the covering is a sign of submission, that you're under someone, that you're under something as a way of showing that you are not free, independent of your husband, but rather you are under the authority of your husband. And a woman who throws off submission to her husband or a daughter who throws off submission to her father brings disgrace upon her head, upon the man who has been placed over her. And this should not be the desire of women. The desire of women should be to respect, to honor their husbands, to honor their husbands. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. Verse 1 says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Notice there. The expectation is that believing wives would even be submissive to unbelieving husbands. Right? Whatever the husband, who even is an unbeliever, whatever he expects that is not contrary to the will of God, the believing wife is to be in submission to him. Well, if that's true for unbelieving, how much more if you have a believing husband? Amen. A believing husband who loves God, who loves God's word, who loves you and who wants what is good and right for you, for the home, 
for the glory of God, even more so than if we have believing husbands, we ought to be in submission to them. Notice then as well, he may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sign of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So there, it should not be frightening. It should not cause fear and dread in the woman to be submissive to their husbands. Sarah was submissive to Abraham, even calling him Lord, and she wasn't frightened by him. She wasn't afraid of him. She saw that it was good and right. Because if we're doing what's pleasing in the sight of God, then what do we have to fear? We have nothing to fear because it is righteous in God's sight, even if the woman has an unbelieving husband. Also, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 33. Ephesians 5.33 says, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So there, the husband is to love his wife as himself because she is a part of his body. And no one ever hated his own body. He loves it, he nourishes it, he cherishes it. So this is how the husband should be toward his wife. And the wife must see, he says, that she respects her husband, that she honors her husband. Well, here, according to this passage, if the woman is praying or prophesying with her head uncovered, She's bringing disgrace or dishonor to her husband, which is contrary to what the apostle teaches that the women are supposed to do, that they are to respect and bring rightful honor to their husband. So the wife must see to it that she does this. And this is how the holy women of old, the righteous women of the Bible, this is how they adorn themselves. They manifested their godliness by giving the respect and honor that was due to their husbands. And this is why he says the woman ought to pray or prophesy with her head covered because if she does not, then she's bringing shame upon her husband, upon her head. Now we might ask, how shameful should this be to us? How are we to understand what this means? And this is a problem, not in just relationship to this issue, but this is a problem when it comes to all sin. Right? That which is shameful in the sight of God is not shameful in the sight of man. This is a universal problem, right? It touches every single thing, not just for women, but for all mankind of all ages. We do not consider how serious, how grotesque, how much shame and contempt is to be seen in sin. And this is what we have to ask God to teach us to give us wisdom, to give us understanding, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask the Lord. We need to ask God for wisdom. And is it wisdom to understand the nature of sin? To understand how horrible, how evil, how grotesque sin is? Of course it is. So we need God to teach us. Lord, teach us to understand our own sin so that we will hate it, that we will detest it, that we will see it for what it truly is. That sin is loathsome that it is disgusting, it is detestable, and we should not cherish it or want it. Because the flesh, what does the flesh want? It wants sin. The flesh teaches us, oh, sin isn't a big deal at all. Right? Sin isn't a big deal. It's not that bad. Actually, there's a lot of good in sin. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of joy in sin. So you should go partake of it. And even if you do sin, you can just ask God to forgive you. Isn't he a gracious God, a merciful God? So just go and commit your sins, and then go ask God later, and he'll forgive you. That's what, this is what the Catholics are teaching. This is what they do in their mass, in their penance, when they go make confession. You go and you commit your sins, then you go to the priest, you confess your sins, and he'll absolve you 
of your sin. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible tells us that we've got to hate sin and see it for what it truly is. Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13. Again, the point being that this is a universal problem. Universal, transcending time and culture. Jeremiah 6, 13. This is to take sin lightly. It says, For from the least of them to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. And at the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down. There, in speaking of the nation and of their sin, which is not just dealing with relationship to men and women, but this is dealing with all of their sins, their idolatries. He says, were they ashamed? when they committed abominations against God, right? They are committing many abominations, many sins against God, things that God says are abominable. These are horrible things in the sight of God that should cause a man to have great shame. He should be utterly embarrassed, utterly ashamed that he would ever do one of these things. And he says, no, they were not ashamed at all. They boast in these things. They don't even know how to blush. Right? Isn't it typical that when someone is embarrassed, they blush? Whenever there's something that brings shame to them, they blush? Well, not these people. And what is the most shameful thing that we could ever do? Is to commit a sin against God. Right? So we have to understand how horrible sin is. We have to see sin for what it truly is. We have to see it through the eyes of faith in what God says. So now back to the topic at hand. Most women today, even most Christian women would not be bothered at all by not wearing a covering during worship. Probably most people have never even thought of it, right? And we understand that, right? That's the case with us as well. No one's ever taught on these things. So in some regards, then, it is an issue of unintentional sin, something that we've not been taught on, something that we don't know, something that we don't understand, because it's not seen in our culture, it's not seen in the world, it's not seen in the churches, and no one is teaching about these things. But in order for us to understand it, in order for us to be taught and to have a point of reference so that we could understand a point of comparison so that we can see and understand what it means to bring disgrace and dishonor, not only upon the husband, the wife to the husband, but also the man to Christ, right? Because in both guards, we need to know what it means for it to be dishonorable or disgraceful. He teaches here by way of comparison. Notice what he says again in verse 5. A woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered is the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Now that is something that everyone can understand. All men and all women can understand that a woman's hair is her glory. It is her beauty. For a woman to have her head shaved is abhorrent. It would be a horrible thing for a woman to have to experience that type of shame, that type of contempt, right? All of the women could imagine how embarrassing it would be, how shameful it would be to have your head shaved off. You wouldn't want to go out in public. You wouldn't want to go anywhere, right? You would want to stay behind closed doors behind locked doors, you wouldn't want anyone to see you, remain at home in private until your hair grew back. Or they would wear a wig or a hat or something if they had to go out in public. Now, why is that the case for women? But it's not the case for men because we have several men here today, myself included, that we go out all the time with our head uncovered. And it's getting more uncovered every day, right? I blame it on the girls, right? Many men, they lose their hair, or even many men, they choose to shave their head just because they want to, right? That way they don't have to wash it as often. It's easier to fix in the morning, right? It's already shaved. So men lose their hair, men shave their hair, and they go out in public, and no one is aghast. 
No one looks at them and says, what's wrong with that guy? Right? It's common, it's normal, it's natural to see that. But if you see a woman, right, especially someone that you knew, and her head was shaved, you would be shocked. It would be abhorrent. Right? You would wonder, what is wrong? What's going on? Right? Is she sick? Is there something that is happening? Right? No sane woman would willfully choose. Right? Now, we're not talking about sickness. We're not talking about someone who gets cancer and has to undergo treatment and they lose their hair as a, regard, as a result of that. Or even when uh, women get into their older age and they begin to lose their hair, their hair thins, and it doesn't grow the way that it used to. So we're not talking about that. Yet even when that's the case, isn't it typical that a woman, if she has cancer and she loses her hair, that many times they'll get a wig or they'll wear a hat or something over their head? Not all the time, but many times they do that as well. And why is that the case? Because of what he's saying here. It's, it's shameful. It is shameful for a woman to have her head shaved. To have her hair shaved off is shameful for the woman to have to endure these things. And also, no man wants that either. He doesn't want his wife to have her head shaved off, right? He wants her to have a, a good-looking hairdo. He doesn't want her going to the beauty parlor and coming back. Then it would not be the beauty parlor. It would be the unbeauty parlor if she came back and they shaved all of her head off, right? He wouldn't like that at all. And even in past times, for example, in France, after World War II, French women who collaborated with the German soldiers when they were occupied by the Germans, the punishment that was inflicted upon them by the society after the Germans were run out and after the French took over their own country is they shaved their heads as a way of shaming them publicly because of their treachery and the traitor, they were traitors to their own country and their collaboration with the men. And also, this has been used in the past for adulterous, uh, an adulterous woman as well, or a fornicatrous woman, is to shave them as a way of bringing public scorn and shame because of the sin that they had committed. This is the comparison that he's making then, right? A woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. We might say, well, what's the big deal? Well, he's saying, is the one and the same as one who has her head shaved, right? No one wants that, Right? So then he's saying, this is the way that you need to think about it. Verse 6. 4. If a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Here, the remedy, the solution. He says, if a woman does not cover her head, then he says she should have her hair cut off. Right? By failing to wear the covering, the woman is through the symbol. Symbolically, she's throwing off submission. She's ceasing to behave like a woman and is instead behaving like a man. So he's saying, if you want to be like a man, then dress like a man. Act like a man. Men have short hair. Men have their hair cut off. So cut your hair off. Right? That's what he's saying. If you won't wear it, then he says, have your head shaved off. The covering then is a symbolic manifestation of submission. The hair is a natural manifestation of submission, which he'll get to at the end of this passage. The long, beautiful hair of the woman is a natural covering by God through creation that she is the weaker vessel and that she should be in submission to the man. The head covering is a symbolic covering that she is the weaker vessel and that she should be in submission to the man. The natural covering and the symbolic covering, then, they go hand in hand. And that's why he says, if she will not wear the symbolic covering, then she also should not wear the natural covering. She should have her head shaved off. But is this an option? No, because he says it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Right? Again, this is common knowledge. This is natural law. It transcends time and culture. Right? The common belief and practice in the world is for a woman to have long hair and for a man to have short hair. And that it is disgraceful, shameful, monstrous for a woman to have her head shaved. So if a woman does not cover her head, he says, let her have her head shaved. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her head shaved, then what's the solution? 
he says, let her cover her head. That's the alternative that he provides. Let her adorn herself with the symbolic covering in order to show her submission to the man, in order to show her godliness in this symbolic way. Now, again, the symbol isn't enough, right? The symbol must be accompanied primarily with the attitude, with the virtue, with the righteousness, with the spirit, with the attitude of the woman. That's what's most important. But that doesn't mean the symbol is insignificant or that the symbol is unimportant. So this then is the first reason that the Apostle Paul is teaching here about the necessity for men to pray and prophesy with their head uncovered and women to pray and prophesy with their head covered. It is to communicate outwardly by way of symbol the proper order, the proper structure of authority in the home and in the church. The man should not have a covering because he is in authority. The woman should have a covering because she is to be under her husband in submission. And the symbol shows this in this way. Now, one last point to make for today from verses 4 to 6. I think from 4 to 6 that it's impossible for the covering to simply be the hair for the covering to simply be the hair, because this is one interpretation, though it is not uh, very common. Most modern interpreters, even those that don't believe in the practice of head coverings for women today, most of them will still say that he is talking about a head covering. He is talking about a piece of cloth or a veil or something that goes over the head. Then they'll say, but it's just cultural, and that's why it's not applicable today. But there are some who say that, no, the head covering is just the long hair, just the long hair, and that's all he's talking about. However, if that's the case, then I don't think his argument makes sense in verses 4 to 6. It doesn't make sense because he's comparing and contrasting two different things, comparing and contrasting two things. He's making a comparison between the covering and the hair. But if the covering and the hair are one in the same thing, then it doesn't make any sense. Because how can it be a comparison? How can it be a contrast if we're talking about the exact same thing? Also, if the only issue here is that women should have long hair and men should have short hair, then why not just say that? Why not just say, men, I want you to have long hair and women, you have short hair. Why do we have this huge argument that he's talking about these things and tying all this stuff in if the only issue is that men should have short hair and women should have long hair when already this is commonly what is practiced. This is common in the culture. It's common in all cultures. Why does it even need to be addressed if all the issue that he's talking about is that women should have long hair and men should have short hair? So this is something that's already being practiced. Also, if you look at verses 5 and 6, Verse 5 and 6, if the phrase does not cover her head means shaved head, right, then it would literally read like this. Every woman who has her head shaved while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman has a shaved head, then let her also have her head shaved. Right? It doesn't make any sense. If it's just the long hair or the short hair and an uncovered head is a shaved head, then he's saying if a woman uncovers her head, then let her have her head shaved. But her head is already shaved if it's simply meaning just the short hair or the shaved head. A woman who prays or prophesies without the symbolic covering is one and the same as the woman who has the shaved head. That's the correlation that he's making between two separate things, right? It has to be two separate things, a woman without a covering and a woman with a shaved head. And these he's putting in comparison and in contrast with one another. If the woman without a covering is a woman with a shaved head, then it doesn't make any sense because in that case, it's not a comparison anymore, right? If she has a shaved head, then let her shave her head. That doesn't make any sense at all. If indeed the covering is simply to have a shaved head or short hair or cut off hair, though she's already got that, how can she shave her hair or cut it off if it's already cut off, right? It doesn't make any sense. Also, you'll notice in verses 14 and 15, 
This is typically where this interpretation comes from. Verse 14 says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory for her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Yes, he does speak of hair for the women as a kind of covering, right? A covering for her. But here he's not talking about the symbol. He's giving a further proof of this, of the necessity for it, by appealing to nature, right? There he's talking about nature. Nature itself communicates that there is a difference between men and women and that there ought to be proper order within the home. So that's what he's talking about in verses 14 and 15. He's talking about nature. Nature itself teaches a difference, a distinction between men and women, that men should be in authority and that women ought to be in submission to their husband. But that's not what he's talking about in verses 4 to 6. In verses 4 to 6, he's talking about a head covering. He's talking about a symbolic covering for praying and prophesying within the public assembly. Right? And this is the way it is commonly interpreted throughout the history of interpretation, and that is what we think is the best interpretation and the one that we will take as we go forward. So we'll stop there today, and next week we'll pick up in verse 7 where he's going to provide another argument for why it is that the man should be uncovered and the woman should be covered, which has to do with glory, with the glory of God and the glory of man. But we'll turn to that next week, and let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we thank you that your word does give to us, Lord, everything that we need for life and for godliness. Lord, it teaches us, Lord, how it is that we are to conduct ourselves in every aspect of life. Lord, so that we can know and do those things that are pleasing in your sight. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand this passage. Lord, we know that it is uncommon. Lord, it is new. It is something that may seem strange to us because, Lord, likely none of us have ever heard a systematic, clear teaching over this passage. Lord, or if we have, it was riddled with much confusion, with lack of clarity, with uncertainty. Lord, we don't want to do that. Lord, we want the teaching, Lord, to be very clear, to be accessible. We want people to be able to understand. And Lord, so that we can know what your will is so that we can do and practice those things that are pleasing in your sight. Lord, ultimately, we know that this has to be done by the work of the Spirit. Lord, it is only the Spirit who can open our eyes, that only the Spirit can teach us. And Lord, he is the one that must help us and guide us into all truth. So Lord, we pray that your Spirit would be with us, Lord, that he would give us understanding, Lord, that we might be able to come to agreement, Lord, to a unity of faith, Lord, concerning these matters. Lord, that you would teach us these things so that we might adorn ourselves in ways that are honoring to you. Lord, that show, Lord, the proper order that you have established in this world, Lord, in the home, in the church. Lord, so that your order and your authority would be manifested among us. And Lord, that our church and our homes would be filled with proper order and peace, Lord, with harmony, Lord, where men and women are both behaving and engaging in those things that they're supposed to do, and that, Lord, it may be a place that would be beneficial to our children, Lord, so that they might be raised in the fear of the Lord. So, Lord, teach us these things, Lord, that we might glorify you in all that we do, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.